Uniformity with God's Will by St. Alphonsus de Liguori On Excellence of This Virtue Perfection is founded entirely on the love of God. Charity is the bond of perfection. And perfect love of God means the complete union of our will with God's. The principal effect of love is so to unite the wills of those who love each other as to make them will the same things. It follows, then, that the more one unites his will with the divine will, the greater will be his love of God. Mortification, meditation, receiving holy communion, acts of fraternal charity are all certainly pleasing to God, but only when they are in accordance with his will. When they do not accord with God's will, he not only finds no pleasure in them, but he even rejects them utterly and punishes them. To illustrate, a man has two servants. One works unremittingly all day long, but according to his own devices. The other, conceivably, works less, but he does do what he is told. This latter, of course, is going to find favor in the eyes of his master. The other will not. Now, in applying this example, we may ask, why should we perform actions for God's glory if they are not going to be acceptable to him? God does not want sacrifices. The prophet Samuel told King Saul, but he does want obedience to his will. Doth the Lord desire holocausts and victims, and not rather that the voice of the Lord should be obeyed? For obedience is better than sacrifices, and to hearken rather than to offer the fat of rams. Because it is like the sin of witchcraft to rebel, and like the crime of idolatry to refuse to obey. The man who follows his own will independently of God's is guilty of a kind of idolatry. Instead of adoring God's will, he in a certain sense adores his own. The greatest glory we can give to God is to do his will in everything. Our Redeemer came on earth to glorify his heavenly Father and to teach us by his example how to do the same. St. Paul represents him saying to his eternal Father, Sacrifice and oblation thou wouldst not, but a body thou hast fitted to me. Then said I, Behold, I come to do thy will, O God. Thou hast refused the victims offered thee by man. Thou dost will that I sacrifice my body to thee. Behold me ready to do thy will. Our Lord frequently declared that he had come on earth not to do his own will, but solely that of his Father. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. He spoke in the same strain in the garden when he went forth to meet his enemies who had come to seize him and to lead him to death. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father hath given me commandment, so do I. Arise, and let us go hence." Furthermore, he said he would recognize as his brother him who would do his will. Whosoever shall do the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother. To do God's will, this was the goal upon which the saints constantly fixed their gaze. They were fully persuaded that in this consists the entire perfection of the soul. Blessed Henry Suso used to say, it is not God's will that we should abound in spiritual delights, 
but that in all things we should submit to his holy will. Those who give themselves to prayer, says St. Teresa, should concentrate solely on this, the conformity of their wills with the divine will. They should be convinced that this constitutes their highest perfection. The more fully they practice this, the greater the gifts they will receive from God, and the greater the progress they will make in the interior life. A certain Dominican nun was vouchsafed a vision of heaven one day. She recognized there some person she had known during their mortal life on earth. It was told her these souls were raised to the sublime heights of the seraphs on account of the uniformity of their wills with that of God's during their lifetime here on earth. Blessed Henry Suso mentioned above said of himself, I would rather be the vilest worm on earth by God's will than be a seraph by my own. During our sojourn in this world we should learn from the saints now in heaven how to love God. The pure and perfect love of God they enjoy there consists in uniting themselves perfectly to his will. It would be the greatest delight of the seraphs to pile up sand on the seashore or to pull weeds in a garden for all eternity if they found out such was God's will. Our Lord himself teaches us to ask to do the will of God on earth as the saints do it in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because David fulfilled all his wishes, God called him a man after his own heart. I have found David, a man according to my own heart, who shall do all my wills. David was always ready to embrace the divine will, as he frequently protested, My heart is ready, O God, my heart is ready. He asked God for one thing alone, to teach him to do his will. Teach me to do thy will. A single act of uniformity with the divine will suffices to make a saint. Behold, while Saul was persecuting the church, God enlightened him and converted him. What does Saul do? What does he say? Nothing else but to offer himself to do God's will. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? In return, the Lord calls him a vessel of election and an apostle of the Gentiles. This man is to me a vessel of election to carry my name before the Gentiles. Absolutely true, because he who gives his will to God gives him everything. He who gives his goods in alms, his blood in scourgings, his food in fasting, gives God what he has. But he who gives God his will gives himself, gives everything he is. Such a one can say, Though I am poor, Lord, I give thee all I possess. But when I say I give thee my will, I have nothing left to give thee. This is just what God does require of us. My son, give me thy heart. St. Augustine's comment is, There is nothing more pleasing we can offer God than to say to him, Possess thyself of us. We cannot offer God anything more pleasing than to say, Take us, Lord, we give thee our entire will. Only let us know thy will, and we will carry it out. If we would completely rejoice the heart of God, let us strive in all things to conform ourselves to his divine will. Let us not only strive to conform ourselves, 
but also to unite ourselves to whatever dispositions God makes of us. Conformity signifies that we join our wills to the will of God. Uniformity means more. It means that we make one will of God's will and ours, so that we will only what God wills, that God's will alone is our will. This is the summit of perfection, and to it we should always aspire. This should be the goal of all our works, desires, meditations, and prayers. To this end, we should always invoke the aid of our holy patrons, our guardian angels, and above all, of our Mother Mary, the most perfect of all the saints, because she most perfectly embraced the divine will. Uniformity in all things. The essence of perfection is to embrace the will of God in all things, prosperous or adverse. In prosperity, even sinners find it easy to unite themselves to the divine will. But it takes saints to unite themselves to God's will when things go wrong and are painful to self-love. Our conduct in such instances is the measure of our love of God. St. John of Avila used to say, One blessed be God in times of adversity is worth more than a thousand acts of gratitude in times of prosperity. Furthermore, we must unite ourselves to God's will not only in things that come to us directly from His hands, such as sickness, desolation, poverty, death of relatives, but likewise in those we suffer from man, for example, contempt, injustice, loss of reputation, loss of temporal goods, and all kinds of persecution. On these occasions we must remember that whilst God did not will the sin, He does will our humiliation, our poverty, or our mortification, as the case may be. It is certain, and of faith, that whatever happens, happens by the will of God. I am the Lord, forming the light and creating the darkness, making peace and creating evil. From God comes all these things, good as well as evil. We call adversities evil. Actually, they are good and meritorious when we receive them as coming from God's hands. Shall there be evil in a city which the Lord hath not done? Good things and evil, life and death, poverty and riches are from God. It is true, when one offends us unjustly, God does not will his sin, nor does he concur in a sinner's bad will. But God does, in a general way, concur in the material action by which such a one strikes us, robs us, or does us an injury. So that God certainly wills the offense we suffer, and it comes to us from his hands. Thus the Lord told David, he would be the author of those things he would suffer at the hands of Absalom. I will raise up evils against thee out of thy own house, and I will take thy wives before thy face and give them to thy neighbor. Hence, too, God told the Jews that in punishment for their sins, he would send the Assyrians to plunder them and spread destruction among them. The Assyrian is the rod and staff of my anger. I will send him to take away the spoils. Assyrian wickedness served as God's scourge for the Hebrews, is St. Augustine's comment on this text. 
And our Lord himself told St. Peter that his sacred passion came not so much from man as from his father. The chalice which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? When the messenger came to announce to Job that the Sabians had plundered his goods and slain his children, he said, The Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. He did not say, The Lord hath given me my children and my possessions, and the Sabians have taken them away. He realized that adversity had come upon him by the will of God. Therefore he added, As it hath pleased the Lord, so it is done. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We must not therefore consider the afflictions that come upon us as happening by chance or solely from the malice of men. We should be convinced that what happens, happens by the will of God. Apropos of this, it is related that two martyrs, Epictetus and Athol, being put to the torture by having their bodies raked with iron hooks and burnt with flaming torches, kept repeating, Work thy will upon us, O Lord. Arrived at the place of execution, they exclaimed, Eternal Lord, be thou blessed in that thy will has been entirely accomplished in us. Caesarius points up what we have been saying by offering this incident in the life of a certain monk. Externally, his religious observance was the same as that of the other monks. But he had attained such sanctity that the mere touch of his garments healed the sick. Marveling at these deeds, since his life was no more exemplary than the lives of the other monks, the superior asked him one day what was the cause of these miracles. He replied that he too was mystified and was at a loss how to account for such happenings. What devotions do you practice? asked the abbot. He answered that there was little or nothing special that he did beyond making a great deal of willing only what God willed and that God had given him the grace of abandoning his will totally to the will of God. Prosperity does not lift me up, nor adversity cast me down, added the monk. I direct all my prayers to the end that God's will may be done fully in me and by me. That raid that our enemies made against the monastery the other day, in which our stores were plundered, our granaries put to the torch, and our cattle driven off, did not this misfortune cause you any resentment? queried the abbot. No, father, came the reply. On the contrary, I return thanks to God, as is my custom in such circumstances, fully persuaded that God does all things, or permits all that happens, for his glory and for our greater good. Thus I am always at peace, no matter what happens. Seeing such uniformity with the will of God, the abbot no longer wondered why the monk worked so many miracles. On Happiness Deriving from Perfect Uniformity Acting according to this pattern, one not only becomes holy, but also enjoys perpetual serenity in his life. Alphonsus the Great, King of Aragon, being asked one day whom he considered the happiest person in the world, answered, He who abandons himself to the will of God and accepts all things, prosperous and adverse, as coming from his hands. To those that love God, all things work together unto good. 
Those who love God are always happy because their whole happiness is to fulfill, even in adversity, the will of God. Afflictions do not mar their serenity because by accepting misfortune they know they give pleasure to their beloved Lord. Whatever shall befall the just man, it shall not make him sad. Indeed, what can be more satisfactory to a person than to experience the fulfillment of all his desires? This is the happy lot of a man who wills only what God wills, because everything that happens, save sin, happens through the will of God. There is a story to this effect in the lives of the fathers about a farmer whose crops were more plentiful than those of his neighbors. On being asked how this happened with such unvarying regularity, he said he was not surprised because he always had the kind of weather he wanted. He was asked to explain. He said, It is so because I want whatever kind of weather God wants, and because I do, He gives me the harvests I want. If souls resigned to God's will are humiliated, says Salvian, they want to be humiliated. If they are poor, they want to be poor. In short, whatever happens is acceptable to them, hence they are truly at peace in this life. In cold and heat, in rain and wind, the soul united to God says, I want it to be warm, to be cold, windy, to rain, because God wills it. This is the beautiful freedom of the sons of God, and it is worth vastly more than all the rank and distinction of blood and birth, more than all the kingdoms in the world. This is the abiding peace which in the experience of the saints surpasses all understanding. It surpasses all pleasures rising from gratification of the senses, from social gatherings, banquets, and other worldly amusements, Vain and deceiving as they are, they captivate the senses for the time being, but bring no lasting contentment. Rather, they afflict man in the depth of his soul, where alone true peace can reside. Solomon, who tasted to the fullness all the pleasures of the world and found them bitter, voiced his disillusionment thus, But this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. A fool, says the Holy Spirit, is changed as the moon, but a holy man continueth in wisdom as the sun. The fool, that is the sinner, is as changeable as the moon, which today waxes and tomorrow wanes. Today he laughs, tomorrow he cries. Today he is meek as a lamb, tomorrow cross as a bear. Why? Because his peace of mind depends on the prosperity or the adversity he meets, he changes with the changes in the things that happen to him. The just man is like the sun, constant in his serenity, no matter what betides him. His calmness of soul is founded on his union with the will of God. Hence he enjoys unruffled peace. This is the peace promised by the angel of the nativity, and on earth, peace to men of good will. Who are these men of good will, if not those whose wills are united to the infinitely good and perfect will of God, the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God? By uniting themselves to the divine will, the saints have enjoyed paradise by anticipation in this life. Accustoming themselves to receive all things from the hands of God, says St. Dorotheus, 
the men of old maintained continual serenity of soul. St. Mary Magdalene of Pazzi derived such consolation at hearing the words, Will of God, that she usually fell into an ecstasy of love. The instances of jangling irritation that are abound to arise will not fail to make surface impact on the senses. This, however, will be experienced only in the inferior part of the soul. In the superior part will reign peace and tranquility as long as our will remains united with God's. Our Lord assured His apostles, Your joy no man shall take from you. Your joy shall be full. He who unites his will to God's experiences a full and lasting joy, full because he has what he wants, as was explained above, lasting because no one can take his joy from him, since no one can prevent what God wills from happening. The devout father John Toller relates this personal experience. For years he had prayed God to send him someone who would teach him the real spiritual life. One day, at prayer, he heard a voice saying, Go to such and such a church, and you will have the answer to your prayers. He went, and at the door of the church he found a beggar, barefooted and in rags. He greeted the mendicant, saying, Good day, my friend. Thank you, sir, for your good wishes, but I do not recall ever having had a bad day. Then certainly God has given you a very happy life. That is very true, sir. I have never been unhappy. In saying this, I am not making any rash statement either. This is the reason. When I have nothing to eat, I give thanks to God. When it rains or snows, I bless God's providence. When someone insults me, drives me away, or otherwise mistreats me, I give glory to God. I said I've never had an unhappy day, and it's the truth, because I am accustomed to will unreservedly what God wills. Whatever happens to me, sweet or bitter, I gladly receive from his hands as what is best for me. Hence, my unvarying happiness. Where did you find God? I found him where I left creatures. Who are you, anyway? I am a king. And where is your kingdom? In my soul, where everything is in good order, where the passions obey reason, and reason obeys God. How have you come to such a state of perfection? By silence. I practice silence towards men, while I cultivate the habit of speaking with God. Conversing with God is the way I found and maintain my peace of soul. Union with God brought this poor beggar to the very heights of perfection. In his poverty, he was richer than the mightiest monarch. In his sufferings, he was vastly happier than worldlings amid their worldly delights. God wills our good. Oh, the supreme folly of those who resist the divine will. In God's providence, no one can escape hardship. Who resisteth his will? A person who rails at God in adversity suffers without merit. Moreover, by his lack of resignation, he adds to his punishment in the next life and experiences greater disquietude of mind in this life. Who resisteth him and hath had peace? The screaming rage of the sick man in his pain, 
the whining complaints of the poor man in his destitution. What will they avail these people except increase their unhappiness and bring them no relief? Little man, says St. Augustine, grow up. What are you seeking in your search for happiness? Seek the one good that embraces all others. Whom do you seek, friend, if you seek not God? Seek him, find him, cleave to him, bind your will to his with bands of steel, and you will live always at peace in this life and in the next. God wills only our good. God loves us more than anybody else can or does love us. His will is that no one should lose his soul, that everyone should save and sanctify his soul. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should return to penance. This is the will of God, your sanctification. God has made the attainment of our happiness His glory, since He is by His nature infinite goodness, and since, as St. Leo says, goodness is diffusive of itself, God has a supreme desire to make us sharers of His goods and of His happiness. If then He sends us suffering in this life, it is for our own good. All things work together unto good. Even chastisements come to us, not to crush us, but to make us mend our ways and save our souls. Let us believe that these scourges of the Lord have happened for our amendment and not for our destruction. God surrounds us with His loving care, lest we suffer eternal damnation. O Lord, Thou hast crowned us as with a shield of Thy good will. He is most solicitous for our welfare. The Lord is solicitous for me. What can God deny us when He has given us His own Son? He that spared not even His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how hath He not also with Him given us all things? Therefore we should most confidently abandon ourselves to all the dispositions of divine providence, since they are for our own good. In all that happens to us, let us say, In peace, in the self-same I will sleep, and I will rest, because Thou, O Lord, hast singularly settled me in hope. Let us place ourselves unreservedly in His hands, because He will not fail to have care of us, casting all your care upon Him, for He hath care of you. Let us keep God in our thoughts and carry out His will, and he will think of us and of our welfare. Our Lord said to St. Catherine of Siena, Daughter, think of me, and I will always think of you. Let us often repeat with the spouse in the canticle, My beloved to me, and I to him. St. Niles, abbot, used to say that our petition should be, not that our wishes be done, but that God's holy will should be fulfilled in us and by us. When therefore something adverse happens to us, let us accept it from his hands, not only patiently, but even with gladness, as did the apostles, who went from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were accounted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. What greater consolation can come to a soul than to know that by patiently bearing some tribulation it gives God the greatest pleasure in its power? Spiritual writers tell us that though the desire of certain souls to please God by their sufferings is acceptable to Him, 
Still more pleasing to him is the union of certain others with his will, so that their will is neither to rejoice nor to suffer, but to hold themselves completely amenable to his will, and they desire only that his holy will be fulfilled. If, devout soul, it is your will to please God and live a life of serenity in this world, unite yourself always and in all things to the divine will. Reflect that all the sins of your past wicked life happen because you wandered from the path of God's will. For the future, embrace God's good pleasure and say to Him in every happening, Yea, Father, for so it hath seemed good in thy sight. When anything disagreeable happens, remember it comes from God, and say at once, This comes from God, and be at peace. I was dumb and opened not my mouth, because thou hast done it. Lord, since thou hast done this, I will be silent and accept it. Direct all your thoughts and prayers to this end, to beg God constantly in meditation communion and visits to the blessed sacrament that he help you accomplish his holy will. Form the habit of offering yourself frequently to God by saying, My God, behold me in thy presence. Do with me in all that I have as thou pleasest. This is the constant practice of St. Teresa. At least fifty times a day she offered herself to God, placing herself at his entire disposition and good pleasure. How fortunate you, kind reader, if you thus act too. You will surely become a saint. Your life will be calm and peaceful. Your death will be happy. At death, all our hope of salvation will come from the testimony of our conscience as to whether or not we are dying resigned to God's will. If during life we have embraced everything as coming from God's hands, and if at death we embrace death in fulfillment of God's holy will, we shall certainly save our souls and die the death of saints. Let us then abandon everything to God's good pleasure, because being infinitely wise, He knows what is best for us, and being all good and all loving, having given His life for us, He wills what is best for us. Let us, as St. Basil counsels us, rest secure in the conviction that beyond the possibility of a doubt, God works to affect our welfare infinitely better than we could ever hope to accomplish or desire it ourselves. Let us now take up in a practical way the consideration of those matters in which we should unite ourselves to God's will. In external matters, in times of great heat, cold or rain, in times of famine, epidemics and similar occasions, we should refrain from expressions like these, what unbearable heat, what piercing cold, what a tragedy. In these instances, we should avoid expressions indicating oppositions to God's will. We should want things to be just as they are, because it is God who thus disposes them. An incident in point would be this one. Late one night, St. Francis Borgia arrived unexpectedly at a Jesuit house in a snowstorm. He knocked and knocked on the door, but all to no purpose, because the community being asleep, no one heard him. When morning came, all were embarrassed for the discomfort he had experienced by having had to spend the night in the open. 
The saint, however, said he had enjoyed the greatest consolation during those long hours of the night by imagining that he saw our Lord up in the sky dropping the snowflakes down upon him. In personal matters, in matters that affect us, let us acquiesce in God's will. For example, in hunger, thirst, poverty, desolation, loss of reputation, let us always say, Do thou build up or tear down, O Lord, as seems good in thy sight. I am content. I wish only what thou dost wish. Thus, too, says Rodriguez, should we act when the devil proposes certain hypothetical cases to us in order to wrest a sinful consent from us, or at least to cause us to be interiorly disturbed. For example, what would you say or what would you do if someone were to say or do such and such a thing to you? Let us dismiss the temptation by saying, By God's grace, I would say or do what God would want me to say or do. Thus we shall free ourselves from imperfection and harassment. Let us not lament if we suffer from some natural defect of body or mind, from poor memory, slowness of understanding, little ability, lameness, or general bad health. What claim have we, or what obligation is God under, to give us a more brilliant mind or a more robust body? Who has ever offered a gift and then lays down the conditions upon which he will accept it? Let us thank God for what in his pure goodness he has given us, and let us be content too with the manner in which he has given it to us. Who knows, perhaps if God had given us greater talent, better health, a more personable appearance, we might have lost our souls. Great talent and knowledge have caused many to be puffed up with the idea of their own importance, and in their pride they have despised others. How easily those who have these gifts fall into grave danger to their salvation. How many, on account of physical beauty or robust health, have plunged headlong into a life of debauchery. How many, on the contrary, who by reason of poverty, infirmity, or physical deformity, have become saints and have saved their souls, who, given health, wealth, or physical attractiveness, had else lost their souls. Let us then be content with what God has given us. But one thing is necessary, and it is not beauty, not health, not talent. It is the salvation of our immortal souls. It is especially necessary that we be resigned in corporal infirmities. We should willingly embrace them in the manner and for the length of time that God wills. We ought to make use of the ordinary remedies in time of sickness, such as God's will, but if they are not effective, let us unite ourselves to God's will, and this will be better for us than would be our restoration to health. Let us say, Lord, I wish neither to be well nor to remain sick. I want only what Thou wilt. Certainly it is more virtuous not to repine in times of painful illness. Still in all, when our sufferings are excessive, it is not wrong to let our friends know what we are enduring and also to ask God to free us from our sufferings. Let it be understood, however, that the sufferings here referred to are actually excessive. It often happens that some, on the occasion of a slight illness, or even a slight indisposition, 
want the whole world to stand still and sympathize with them in their illness. But where it is a case of real suffering, we have the example of our Lord, who at the approach of his bitter passion made known his state of soul to his disciples, saying, My soul is sorrowful even unto death, and besought his eternal Father to deliver him from it. Father, if it be possible, let this chalice pass from me. But our Lord likewise taught us what we should do when we have made such a petition, when he added, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. How childish! The pretense of those who protest they wish for health not to escape suffering, but to serve our Lord better by being able to observe their rule, to serve the community, to go to church, receive communion, do penance, study, work for souls in the confessional and pulpit. Devout soul, tell me, why do you desire to do these things? To please God? Why then search any further to please God, when you are sure God does not wish these prayers, communions, penances, or studies, but he does wish that you suffer patiently this sickness he sends you? Unite then your sufferings to those of our Lord. But you say, I do not want to be sick, for then I am useless, a burden to my order, to my monastery. But if you are united to and resigned to God's will, you will realize that your superiors are likewise resigned to the dispositions of divine providence, and that they recognize the fact that you are a burden not through indolence, but by the will of God. Ah, how often these desires and these laments are born, not of the love of God, but of the love of self. How many of them are so many pretexts for fleeing the will of God? Do we want to please God? When we find ourselves confined to our sickbed, let us utter this one prayer, Thy will be done. Let us repeat it time and time again, and it will please God more than all our mortifications and devotions. There is no better way to serve God than cheerfully to embrace His holy will. St. John of Avila once wrote to a sick priest, My dear friend, do not weary yourself planning what you would do if you were well, but be content to be sick for as long as God wishes. If you are seeking to carry out God's will, what difference should it make to you whether you are sick or well? The saint was perfectly right, for God is glorified not by our works, but by our resignation to and by our union with his holy will. In this respect, St. Francis de Sales used to say, we serve God better by our sufferings than by our actions. Many times it will happen that proper medical attention or effective remedies will be lacking, or even that the doctor will not rightly diagnose our case. In such instances we must unite ourselves to the divine will which thus disposes of our physical health. The story is told of a client of St. Thomas of Canterbury, who, being sick, went to the saint's tomb to obtain a cure. He returned home cured. But then he thought to himself, Suppose it would be better for my soul's salvation if I remained sick. What point then is there in being well? In this frame of mind he went back and asked the saint to intercede with God that he grant what would be best for his eternal salvation. His illness returned, 
and he was perfectly content with the turn things had taken, being fully persuaded that God had thus disposed of him for his own good. There is a similar account by Surio to the effect that a certain blind man obtained the restoration of his sight by praying to St. Badasto, bishop. Thinking the matter over, he prayed again to his heavenly patron, but this time with the purpose that if the possession of his sight were not expedient for his soul, that his blindness should return. And that's exactly what happened. He was blind again. Therefore, in sickness it is better that we seek neither sickness nor health, but that we abandon ourselves to the will of God, so that he may dispose of us as he wishes. However, if we decide to ask for health, let us do so at least always resigned and with the proviso that our bodily health may be conducive to the health of our soul. Otherwise our prayer will be defective and will remain unheard because our Lord does not answer prayers made without resignation to his holy will. Sickness is the acid test of spirituality because it discloses whether our virtue is real or sham. If the soul is not agitated, does not break out in lamentations, is not feverishly restless in seeking a cure, but instead is submissive to the doctors and to superiors, is serene and tranquil, completely resigned to God's will, it is a sign that that soul is well grounded in virtue. What of the whiner who complains of lack of attention, that his sufferings are beyond endurance, that the doctor does not know his business? What of the faint-hearted soul who laments that the hand of God is too heavy upon him? This story by St. Bonaventure in his Lives of St. Francis is in point. On a certain occasion, when the saint was suffering extraordinary physical pain, one of his religious meaning to sympathize with him said in his simplicity, My father, pray God that he treat you a little more gently, for his hand seems heavy upon you just now. Hearing this, St. Francis strongly resented the unhappy remark of his well-meaning brother, saying, My good brother, did I not know that what you have just said was spoken in all simplicity, without realizing the implication of your words, I should never see you again because of your rashness in passing judgment on the disposition of divine providence. Whereupon, weak and wasted as he was by his illness, he got out of bed, knelt down, kissed the floor, and prayed thus, Lord, I thank thee for the sufferings thou art sending me. Send me more, if it be thy good pleasure. My pleasure is that you afflict me and spare me not, for the fulfillment of thy holy will is the greatest consolation of my life. On Spiritual Desolation We ought to view in the light of God's holy will the loss of persons who are helpful to us in a spiritual or material way. Pious souls often fail in this respect by not being resigned to the dispositions of God's holy will. Our sanctification comes fundamentally and essentially from God, not from spiritual directors. When God sends us a spiritual director, he wishes us to use him for our spiritual profit. But if he takes him away, he wants us to remain calm and unperturbed, 
and to increase our confidence in his goodness by saying to him, Lord, thou hast given me this help, and now thou dost take it away. Blessed be thy holy will. I beg thee, teach me what I must do to serve thee. In this manner, too, we should receive whatever other crosses God sends us. But, you reply, these sufferings are really punishments. The answer to that remark is, are not the punishments God sends us in this life also graces and benefits? Our offenses against God must be atoned for somehow, either in this life or in the next. Hence, we should all make St. Augustine's prayer our own. Lord, here cut, here burn, and spare me not, but spare me in eternity. Please go to side B. Let us say with Job, let this be my comfort, that afflicting me with sorrow he spare not. Having merited hell for our sins, we should be consoled that God chastises us in this life and animate ourselves to look upon such treatment as a pledge that God wishes to spare us in the next. When God sends us punishments, let us say with the high priest Heli, it is the Lord, let him do what is good in his sight. The time of spiritual desolation is also a time for being resigned. When a soul begins to cultivate the spiritual life, God usually showers his consolations upon her to wean her away from the world. But when he sees her making solid progress, he withdraws his hand to test her, to see if she will love and serve him without the reward of sensible consolations. In this life, as St. Teresa used to say, our lot is not to enjoy God, but to do his holy will. And again, love of God does not consist in experiencing his tendernesses, but in serving him with resolution and humility. And in yet another place, God's true lovers are discovered in times of aridity and temptation. Let the soul thank God when she experiences his loving endearments but let her not repine when she finds herself left in desolation. It is important to lay great stress on this point, because some souls, beginners in the spiritual life, finding themselves in spiritual aridity, think God has abandoned them, or that the spiritual life is not for them. Thus they give up the practice of prayer and lose what they have previously gained. The time of aridity is the best time to practice resignation to God's holy will. I do not say you will feel no pain in seeing yourself deprived of the sensible presence of God. It is impossible for the soul not to feel it and lament over it, when even our Lord cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In her sufferings, however, the soul should always be resigned to God's will. The saints have all experienced desolations and abandonment of soul. How impervious to things spiritual, my heart, cries a St. Bernard. No savor in pious reading, no pleasure in meditation nor in prayer. For the most part, it has been the common lot of the saints to encounter aridities. Sensible consolations were the exceptions. Such things are rare occurrences granted to untried souls 
so that they may not halt on the road to sanctity. The real delights and happiness that will constitute their reward are reserved for heaven. This earth is a place of merit which is acquired by suffering. Heaven is a place of reward and happiness. Hence, in this life, the saints neither desired nor sought the joys of sensible fervor, but rather the fervor of the Spirit toughened in the crucible of suffering. Oh, how much better it is, says St. John of Avila, to endure aridity and temptation by God's will than to be raised to the heights of contemplation without God's will. But you say you would gladly endure desolation if you were certain that it comes from God. But you're tortured by the anxiety that your desolation comes by your own fault and is a punishment for your tepidity. Very well, let us suppose you're right. Then get rid of your tepidity and exercise more diligence in the affairs of your soul. But because you're possibly experiencing spiritual darkness, are you going to get all wrought up, give up prayer, and thus make things twice as bad as they are? Let us assume that this aridity is a punishment for your tepidity. Was it not God who sent it? Accept your desolation as your just deserts, and unite yourself to God's holy will. Did you not say that you merited hell, and now you're complaining? Perhaps you think God should send you consolations. Away with such ideas, and be patient under God's hand. Take up your prayers again, and continue to walk in the way you have entered upon. For the future, fear lest such laments come from too little humility and too little resignation to the will of God. Therefore, be resigned and say, Lord, I accept this punishment from thy hands, and accept it for as long as it pleases thee. If it be thy will that I should be thus afflicted for all eternity, I am satisfied. Such a prayer, though hard to make, will be far more advantageous to you than the sweetest sensible consolations. It is well to remember, however, that aridity is not always a chastisement. At times it is a disposition of divine providence for our greater spiritual profit and to keep us humble. Lest St. Paul become vain on account of the spiritual gifts he had received, the Lord permitted him to be tempted to impurity. And lest the greatness of the revelation should exalt me, there was given me a sting of my flesh, an angel of Satan to buffet me. Prayer made amid sensible devotion is not much of an achievement. There is a friend, a companion at the table, and he will not abide in the day of distress. You would not consider the casual guest at your table a friend, but only him who assists you in your need without thought of benefit to himself. When God sends spiritual darkness and desolation, his true friends are known. Palladius, the author of the Lives of the Fathers of the Desert, experiencing great disgust in prayer, went seeking advice from the abbot Macarius. The saintly abbot gave him this counsel. When you are attempted in times of dryness to give up praying, because you seem to be wasting your time, say, Since I cannot pray, I will be satisfied just to remain on watch here in my cell for the love of Jesus Christ. Devout soul, you do the same when you are tempted to give up prayer, just because you seem to be getting nowhere. Say, I am going to stay here just to please God. St. Francis de Sales used to say that if we do nothing else, 
but banish distractions and temptations in our prayers, the prayer is well made. Toller states that persevering prayer in time of dryness will receive greater grace than prayer made amid great sensible devotion. Rodriguez cites the case of a person who persevered forty years in prayer despite aridity and experienced great spiritual strength as a result of it. On occasion, when through aridity he would omit meditation, he felt spiritually weak and incapable of good deeds. St. Bonaventure and Gerson both say that persons who do not experience the recollection they would like to have in their meditations often serve God better than they would do if they did have it. The reason is that lack of recollection keeps them more diligent and humble. Otherwise they would become puffed up with spiritual pride and grow tepid, vainly believing they had reached the summit of sanctity. What has been said of dryness holds true of temptations also. Certainly we should strive to avoid temptations, but if God wishes that we be tempted against faith, purity, or any other virtue, we should not give in to discouraging lamentations, but submit ourselves with resignation to God's holy will. St. Paul asked to be freed from temptations to impurity, and our Lord answered him, saying, my grace is sufficient for thee. So should we act when we find ourselves victims of unrelenting temptations, and God seemingly deaf to our prayers. Let us then say, Lord, do with me, let happen to me what thou wilt. Thy grace is sufficient for me. Only never let me lose this grace. Consent to temptation, not temptation of itself, can make us lose the grace of God. Temptation resisted keeps us humble, brings us greater merit, makes us have frequent recourse to God, thus preserving us from offending Him and unites us more closely to Him in the bonds of His holy love. Finally, we should be united to God's will in regard to the time and manner of our death. One day, St. Gertrude, while climbing up a small hill, lost her footing and fell into a ravine below. After her companions had come to her assistance, they asked her if while falling she had any fear of dying without the sacraments. I earnestly hope and desire to have the benefit of the sacraments when death is at hand. Still, to my way of thinking, the will of God is more important. I believe that the best disposition I could have to die a happy death would be to submit myself to whatever God would wish in my regard. For this reason, I desire whatever kind of death God will be pleased to send me. In his dialogues, St. Gregory tells of a certain priest, Santolo by name, who was captured by the Vandals and condemned to death. The barbarians told him to choose the manner of his death. He refused, saying, I am in God's hands, and I gladly accept whatever kind of death he wishes me to suffer at your hands. I wish no other. This reply was so pleasing to God that he miraculously stayed the hand of the executioner ready to behead him. The barbarians were so impressed by the miracle that they freed their prisoner. As regards the manner of our death, therefore, we should esteem the best kind of death for us which God has designed for us. When, therefore, we think of our death, let our prayer be, O Lord, only let me save my soul 
and I leave the manner of my death to thee. We should likewise unite ourselves to God's will when the moment of death is near. What else is this earth but a prison where we suffer and where we are in constant danger of losing God? Hence David prayed, Bring my soul out of prison. St. Teresa, too, feared to lose God, and when she would hear the striking of the clock, she would find consolation in the thought that the passing of the hour was an hour less of the danger of losing God. St. John of Avila was convinced that every right-minded person should desire death on account of living in peril of losing divine grace. What can be more pleasant or desirable than by dying a good death to have the assurance of no longer being able to lose the grace of God? Perhaps you will answer that you have as yet done nothing to deserve this reward. If it were God's will that your life should end now, what would you be doing, living on here against His will? Who knows, you might fall into sin and be lost. Even if you escaped mortal sin, you could not live free from all sin. Why are we so tenacious of life, exclaimed St. Bernard, when the longer we live, the more we sin? A single venial sin is more displeasing to God than all the good works we can perform. Moreover, the person who has little desire for heaven shows he has little love for God. The true lover desires to be with his beloved. We cannot see God while we remain here on earth, hence the saints have yearned for death, so that they might go and behold their beloved Lord face to face. Oh, that I might die and behold thy beautiful face, sighed St. Augustine. And St. Paul, having a desire to be dissolved and to be with Christ, when shall I come and appear before the face of God, exclaimed the psalmist. A hunter one day heard the voice of a man singing most sweetly in the forest. Following the sound, he came upon a leper horribly disfigured by the ravages of his disease. Addressing him, he said, How can you sing when you're so terribly afflicted and your death is so near at hand? And the leper, Friend, my poor body is a crumbling wall, and it is the only thing that separates me from my God. When it falls, I shall go forth to God. Time for me is indeed fast running out, so every day I show my happiness by lifting my voice in song. Lastly, we should, should unite ourselves to the will of God as regards our degree of grace and glory. True, we should esteem the things that make for the glory of God, but we should show the greatest esteem for those that concern the will of God. We should desire to love God more than the seraphs, but not to a degree higher than God has destined for us. St. John of Avila says, I believe every saint has had the desire to be higher in grace than he actually was. However, despite this, their serenity of soul always remained unruffled. Their desire for a greater degree of grace sprang not from a consideration of their own good, but of God's. They were content with the degree of grace God had meted out for them, though actually God had given them less. They considered it a greater sign of true love of God to be content with what God had given them than to desire to have received more. 
This means, as Rodriguez explains it, we should be diligent in striving to become perfect so that tepidity and laziness may not serve as excuses for some to say, God must help me, I can only do so much for myself. Nevertheless, when we do fall into some fault, we should not lose our peace of soul and union with the will of God, which permits our fall, nor should we lose our courage. Let us rise at once from this fall, penitently humbling ourselves, and by seeking greater help from God, let us continue to march resolutely on the highway of this spiritual life. Likewise, we may well desire to be among the seraphs in heaven, not for our own glory, but for God's, and to love Him more. Still, we should be resigned to His will, and be content with that degree of glory which in His mercy He has set for us. It would be a serious defect to desire the gifts of supernatural prayer, specifically ecstasies, visions, and revelations. The masters of the spiritual life say that souls thus favored by God should ask Him to take them away so that they may love Him out of pure faith, a way of greater security. Many have come to perfection without these supernatural gifts. The only virtues worthwhile are those that draw the soul to holiness of life, namely the virtue of uniformity with God's holy will. If God does not wish to raise us to the heights of perfection and glory, let us unite ourselves in all things to His holy will, asking Him in His mercy to grant us our soul salvation. If we act in this manner, the reward will not be slight which we shall receive from the hands of God who loves above all others souls resigned to His holy will. In conclusion, finally, we should consider the events which are happening to us now and which will happen to us in the future as coming from the hands of God. Everything we do should be directed to this one end, to do the will of God and to do it solely for the reason that God wills it. To walk more securely in this road, we must depend on the guidance of our superiors in external matters and on our directors in internal matters to learn from them God's will in our regard, having great faith in the words of our Lord, He that heareth you heareth me. Above all, let us bend all our energies to serve God in the way He wishes. This remark is made so that we may avoid the mistake of him who wastes his time in idle daydreaming. Such a one says, If I were to become a hermit, I would become a saint. Or, if I were to enter a monastery, I would practice penance. Or, if I were to go away from here, leaving friends and companions, I would devote long hours to prayer. If, 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 all these ifs. In the meantime, such a person goes from bad to worse. These idle fancies are often temptations of the devil, because they are not in accord with God's will. Hence, we should dismiss them summarily and rouse ourselves to serve God only in that way which He has marked out for us. Doing His holy will, we shall certainly become holy in those surroundings in which He has placed us. Let us will always and ever only what God wills, for so doing He will press us to His heart. To this end, let us familiarize ourselves with certain texts of sacred scripture 
that invite us to unite ourselves constantly with the divine will. Lord, what wilt thou have me do? Tell me, my God, what thou wilt have me do, that I may will it also with all my heart. I am thine, save thou me. I am no longer my own. I am thine, O Lord. Do with me as thou wilt. If some particularly crushing misfortune comes upon us, for example, the death of a relative, loss of goods, let us say, Yea, Father, for so it hath seemed good in thy sight. Yes, my God and my Father, so be it, for such is thy good pleasure. Above all, let us cherish that prayer of our Lord which he himself taught us, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Lord bade St. Catherine of Genoa to make a notable pause at these words whenever she said the Our Father, praying that God's holy will be fulfilled on earth with the same perfection with which the saints do it in heaven. Let this be our practice also, and we shall certainly become saints. May the, may the divine will be loved and praised. May the Immaculate Virgin be also praised. Thus concludes Uniformity with God's Will by St. Alphonsus de Liguori. Thank, thank you kindly for obtaining this tape from Holy Family Recordings. Please listen to this tape often and let others also hear it and let them know where they also may obtain tapes at a very reasonable price and receive a free tape with every order from Holy Family Recordings. Write to Patrick Henry, Route 2, Box 957, Safford, Arizona, 85546. And as a free bonus gift to you for obtaining this tape, I will now fill in the remainder of this Side B from another set of tapes, three tapes to cover the book, Councils of Perfection for Christian Mothers. May Jesus, Mary, and St. Joseph grant you every grace you need to live in complete uniformity with God's most holy will. Ora pro nobis. Councils of Perfection for Christian Mothers by the Very Reverend P. Lejeune, Honorary Canon of the Cathedral of Rheims, Archpriest of Charleville, translated with the author's permission by Francis A. Ryan. Nihil Obstat, F. J. Holweck, Censor Librorum, St. Ludovici, the 21st of October, 1913. Imprimatur, by John J. Glennon, Archiepiscopal St. Ludovici, 21st of October, 1913. Copyright 1913 by Joseph Gumersbach. Part First The End Obstacles Councils of Perfection, Chapter One true and false devotion. My daughters, you all aspire to perfection, 
but what is your idea of perfection? Do you not often use this word in a vague and even false sense? It trips so lightly into your conversation that each one prides herself on having a very clear conception of it. I am positive, however, that if I were to ask you to divine this word, the response would be a confusion of tongues. Perfection is frequently attributed to persons who assume strained attitudes and an affected bearing. Now this notion of perfection is erroneous. For these strained attitudes and this affectation, far from constituting true perfection, are but counterfeits of it. For many, perfection consists in an invariable series of prayers. They consider it a crime to fail to make the sign of the cross, to omit one of the multiple invocations to some saint in paradise, or to cut short a novena or some other pious practice. The laws of justice, the injunctions of charity, the rules of prudence, humility, and modesty are elements of perfection to which these people give not the slightest concern. This type of devotee is to, by no means new. It flourished even in the days of our Savior. You may recall to mind the Pharisees whom Jesus reproached for straining the gnat and swallowing the camel. The author of the imitation severely rebukes those who center all their devotion on books, images, and exterior signs and symbols. I'm not sure that some of you are not given to this whimsical and purely exterior piety. Some of you perhaps permit your interior life to lie follow because you have in your rooms an altar of the Blessed Virgin or the Sacred Heart arranged with taste and adorned with the fairest flowers of the season. Let us smile and pass on. Here is another error. We find it among those honest but short-sighted people who insist upon viewing the spiritual life from one side only. This error lies in identifying perfection with macerations and corporeal penances. According to this view, he alone reaches the highest degree of perfection who can best submit to the blows of discipline or to long-continued fasts. Now I have often read that sanctity adapts itself adm admirably to ordinary life and does not at all entail the extraordinary and terrifying attendance of corporeal penances. If this be our idea of perfection, then our idea is not correct. Let us read a passage from St. Francis de Sales in which he describes with his usual grace all the counterfeits of perfection. You must first know that what the virtue of devotion is. For since there is but one true devotion, and many which are false and deceitful, if you cannot distinguish that which is true, you may easily deceive yourself in following some fantastical and superstitious devotion. As Aurelius painted all the faces of his pictures to the resemblance of the woman he loved, so everyone paints devotion according to his own passion and fancy. He that is addicted to fasting thinks himself very devout if he fasts, though his heart be at the same time filled with rancor, and scrupling to moisten his tongue with wine or even with water through sobriety, he makes no difficulty to drink deep of his neighbor's blood, as it were by detraction and calumny. Another considers himself devout because he recites daily a multitude of prayers, though immediately afterwards he utters the most disagreeable, arrogant, and injurious words against his domestics and neighbors. Another cheerfully draws money out of his purse to relieve the poor, but cannot draw meekness out of his heart to forgive his enemies. Another readily forgives his enemies, but never satisfies his creditors except by constraint. These may be esteemed devout by some, but in reality they are by no means so. 
When Saul's servants sought David in his house, Michal, laying a statue in his bed and covering it with his clothes, made them believe it was David himself. Thus many persons, by covering themselves with certain external actions, make the world believe that they are truly devout, whereas they are in reality nothing but statues and phantoms of devotion. Having pointed out the counterfeits of perfection, I must now proceed to give a precise definition of it. But you must remember that it is exceedingly difficult to shape a definition which can be applied to all natures without exception. The saints, judging them on the surface, differ vastly in their ideas of perfection. The severe St. Jerome, for example, seems to have a very remote relation to the sweet St. Francis de Sales. St. Aloysius Gonzaga and St. Stanislaus, delicate flowers that expanded in the peace and regularity of the religious life, bear but little resemblance to St. Francis Xavier, who, preceding from the most daring explorers, traversed the world to win kingdoms for Jesus Christ. If I study the writings of the saints, if I recall the words that fell from their lips and strive from these to form an idea of true perfection, I am again plunged into perplexity. I hear St. Francis of Assisi preaching, Be ye poor, this is perfection. I hear St. Francis de Paul repeating, Be ye charitable, this is perfection. I hear the Abbe de Ronsi, the austere reformer of the Trappist, saying, Be ye mortified, this is perfection. So I might heap up citation upon citation, but these will suffice to show how difficult it is to arrive at a formula for perfection which will fit all the saints determine the common trait which permits us to classify all under one head and enables us to say of each one, Here is a saint. My daughters, I trust that the definition of perfection which I shall give will sink deeply into your hearts. Perfection is accomplishing the will of God in a constant and generous fashion. That person then is perfect who does at every instant what God wishes Ask her at any moment what she is doing, and she will always respond, That which God wishes. If a response other than that be obtained from her, for example, I am doing what pleases myself or some other creature, then you have the right to say, This person is not perfect. Do you ask for an example of a perfect woman? I shall give it you from the heavenly hierarchy by recalling the life of Mary, who in the matter of perfection is the nearest approach to God. She it is whom I charge to prove my thesis in such a way that you will be clearly persuaded that sanctity does not at all consist in splendor or magnificence or the glitter of exterior things, but rather in an interior principle which animates the most ordinary actions and communicates to them an almost inestimable value. Consider for a moment the life of Mary. What do you find rare or extraordinary in that life? It was the life of a plain Judean woman in the century of Augustus. It was spent in the monotony of the most commonplace occupations. We see Mary as a child growing up pious and pure under her mother's care. We see her as a young maiden espousing a workman. We see her as a mother watching over her slumbering infant. We see her as a housewife preparing food for the husband and the son returning from their labors. Yet this woman is holy incomparably holier than all the saints taken together, holy with a holiness before which all other holiness pales, as the light of the stars pale when the sun rises above the horizon. I challenge anyone to find another explanation of Mary's sanctity than this. 
Mary was accomplishing the will of God at every moment of her life, and the perfect love with which she accomplished that will constituted the measure of her sanctity. Moreover, this rule can be applied to all the saints. Do not invoke the name of Sir Ansa Xavier because he won kingdoms for Jesus Christ. Do not invoke the name of St. Vincent de Paul because he gathered all the wretched under the folds of his robe. Do not invoke the name of St. John Baptist de la Salle because he permitted his love for children to develop into heroism. If St. Francis had baptized the Japanese and the Indians without the command of God, he would not be holy. If St. Vincent de Paul had sheltered all the suffering under his robe without the command of God, he would not be holy. If St. John Baptist de la Salle had, without divine command, sold his goods and renounced all dignities in order to become master of a school, he would not be holy. It was the will of God realized by them and accomplished in them that made these men saints. Thus understood, perfection no longer appears to us as the privilege of the few. There are no professions in which it is allied to the exclusion of other professions. There are no countries to which it adapts itself to the exclusion of other countries. It is for all times, for all countries, and for all states and professions. Whatever may be your station in life, whether you were born of poor parents like our Savior, or whether you spring from a family where ease and even opulence reigns, it matters little. Remember that perfection can and ought to harmonize with every state and condition. The outline of perfection which I have sketched in this chapter does not originate with me. I have taken it from the words of the Savior, who far from designating certain individuals, sell, says to us all, Be ye perfect. Let me recall to your minds that beautiful prayer which a holy princess, Madame Elizabeth, daughter of a king and sister of Louis the Sixteenth, made each morning of her life, and I charge you to repeat it every day, if not verbatim, at least in its general sense. My God, what will happen to me today I do not know, but I do know that nothing will happen to me which thou hast not foreseen and ordained for my greater good. I accept, then, thy thrice holy will. I submit myself to it, and desire to delight in it, despite all the revolts of my reason and the repugnances of my nature. Chapter 2 A Catalogue of Souls What is the state of my soul? What place do I occupy with regard to God in the great family of Christian souls? These, my daughters, are questions to which you must not be indifferent. In order to furnish you with the elements of a response to these questions, I intend to draw up a catalog of souls which will enable you to, de to determine to what category you belong. My purpose, I must avow, is not solely to satisfy your curiosity. When you know just where your place is in this catalog, you should aspire to a higher degree of excellence in the hierarchy of souls. It is my purpose to guide you in your upward march, to point out the halting places along the way, and to indicate the means by which you can arrive most quickly and most surely at the coveted goal. A Preliminary Observation The catalogue that I shall draw up is not at all concerned with those who live in the state of habitual mortal sin. I write for those earnest Christians who, to say the least, never commit a grave fault. If someone among my readers should be so unfortunate as to live continually at enmity with God, this poor soul would be an object to weep over and to pray for, but not to delay upon. What principle is to guide us in our classification of souls? 
which one of our faculties will instruct us as to the state of our souls and authorize us to decide, without fear of error, whether this or that soul is ill or well. Let us interrogate successfully our three chief faculties, the sensibility, the intelligence, and the will. Will the sensibility instruct us infallibly as to the state of a soul? No. The sensibility is a faculty which deceives us, even in the ordinary affairs of life, and which in our relations with God baffles all our calculations and evades all our previsions. For example, today you feel that your affection for some person you love is much less lively than yesterday, and you are at a loss to account for this. You may have done nothing which, to your knowledge, might produce this effect. So, in the affairs of piety, you will experience vacillations, yet more pronounced, and yet not less inexplicable. Today, full of ardor in prayer, you open your soul before God without the least effort, and experience a deep feeling of love for Him. Tomorrow, your prayers seem but empty words which your sensibility disavows. Evidently, your sensibility has undergone a change, but has the state of your soul changed? Not at all. In the eyes of God, you are the same as you were yesterday, despite your seeming lukewarmness. It is not to the sensibility, then, that we must have recourse when we wish to determine our place in the catalogue of souls. To take this faculty for our guide would be to expose ourselves to innumerable disappointments. We should be great saints at times when our hearts beat more lively in prayer than is customary with us, but we should be the worst miscreants when we prayed without relish and happiness. Are you not aware, my daughters, that the majority of the saints had to endure these, this absence of sensible relish and this, these vacillations of the sensibility, which in their relations with God brought them agony and torture rather than joy? We may well believe them when they tell us that in prayer they were beasts of burden before God. But was their prayer less meritorious and efficacious because it was not accompanied by sensible joy? The sensibility, then, is a faculty which we cannot be too distrustful of when we desire to render to ourselves an account of our standing with God. Is the intelligence our infallible guide? Does the vigor of our spiritual life depend upon this faculty? It would, if to know good were to be good, but how frequently we find those of enlightened intelligence satisfied to let their morality consist mainly in desire. It is so seldom that we love God in the measure in which we know Him. It is not at all impossible to have a consummate knowledge of religion and the spiritual life, to be a light for others and yet resemble the guidepost which points the way, but itself remains immovable. Moreover, would it be just for our spiritual vitality to be in proportion to the various lights which God gives us? There are some on whom God has bestowed light sparingly. There are others on whom he has shed it abundantly. But what is light? It is but the means of knowing good. Thus each one is held to do good in the measure in which she comprehends it. Abundance of light, then, is a gift for which we shall be judged more severely by God, and if we bring to his tribunal an intelligence rich in light and a life poor in merits, we may well be fearful. It is not to the intelligence you must look, therefore, in order to ascertain the state of your spiritual life. There remains now the will. 
How is your will disposed towards God? Is your will united to the will of God? Do you wish what God wishes, the least important things as well as the most essential? Do you make some reserve, yielding to the divine will on one point and opposing it on another? These, my daughters, are questions the import of which you will at once appreciate, questions which are, which are of capital significance for you. It is indeed true that the will is the important faculty in the spiritual man. Hence it is that Catholic theolo theology styles the sinful soul a will turned away from God, and the fervent soul a will which adheres to God. Moreover, recall the definition of perfection which we have given in the preceding chapter. Perfection consists in accomplishing the will of God in a constant and generous fashion. Thus it follows that we withdraw from or approach perfection according as we shun the divine will or adhere more generously to it. We have at hand then the solution of our problem. The will must teach us the state of the soul. What is the attitude of my will relative to God? When I have responded to this question, I know what the state of my soul is. I can classify my soul. I can tell to what category it belongs. The principle which we have just laid down will permit a classification of souls which I trust will be satisfactory to my readers. First, those whose souls are lukewarm and who accept only the struggle against mortal sin. Second, those whose souls are fervent and who not only struggle against venial sin but also undertake to reform themselves. Third, those whose souls are very fervent and who are habitually disposed to refuse God nothing. The first of these three categories calls for some remarks. The signs of lukewarmness are indicated by the general rules which I have laid down. I have found them well drawn out in a fine passage taken from one of the works of Pierre Genesou on the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. Signs of lukewarmness to have little or no regard for venial sin, and to fear only mortal sin, to perform one's spiritual exercises out of a spirit of routine or human respect, with disgust and with negligence reflected upon and consented to, to pray habitually without attention, to confess one's faults lightly without the serious resolution of avoiding them, to communicate without devotion by not striving to obtain it, to perform one's daily actions without the proper intention, without order or method, to be given over, over to exterior things, to be rarely present to one's self, and yet more rarely to have God present, to renounce the exercise of great virtues, even those whose practice is suited to one's state or profession, to be content with a state of mediocrity, to shun the company of those who work with ardor for their perfection, to seek the company of those who are more dissipated, less fervent, and less regular, to form an erroneous conscience, the cause of which superiors and directors often attribute to lack of good judgment, to employ false principles to silence remorse, to nourish, despite the frequent use of the sacraments, interior aversions, jealousies, movements of pride, and particular and dangerous affections, to encourage a spirit of harshness, insubordination and cavilling, which manifests itself in offensive and contentious words, to entertain continually a secret self-love, which mingling in all its actions corrupts and infects them with its virus, 
Lastly, to shirk whatever entails labor and self-abnegation and to seek rather for comforts, futile consolations and ease. From this simple statement, you can tell to what category you belong. After having read the chapters that will follow, you will be yet more capable of judging, will better understand how one can pass from one of these states into the other. Very happy should I be if this study would stimulate those among you who are lukewarm to march with a resolute step to the conquest of fervor and should inspire those already fervent with a desire to mount higher and still higher in fervor and love. Chapter 3 Naturalism My daughters, permit me to denounce, under the name of naturalism, a widespread evil of our day, an evil that infects the soul in various ways. Surely you are not ignorant of the vast difference between the soul of the Christian and the soul of the pagan. The will and intelligence of the Christian have received a new life, superadded to that of nature, and called for that reason the supernatural life. Analyze the intelligence of the Christian and you will see that it is formed and fashioned in an entirely different way than the intelligence of the pagan. You will find there certain truths which reason itself could not have discovered, and a unity of conviction and judgment that has not sprung from natural causes. Apply yourselves with the same earnestness to the study of the Christian's will. You will obtain the same results. You will behold this will, loving persons and things to which the will of the pagan is indifferent. For example, you will see the supernatural man regarding the sacred host with love, and the natural man casting only a vacant glance upon it. The soul of the Christian is cast in a supernatural mold. The supernatural life is its foundation. Hence, the supernatural ought to rule our thoughts.